If you have your Bible, would you turn with me to 1 Kings 17, a well-known passage of Scripture, 1 Kings chapter 17, and verse 1. Sorry, 1 Samuel 17, doing well, doing well. 1 Samuel 17. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Soko in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephes Damim between Soko and Azekah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. This passage opens with a familiar scene. The Philistines are gathering for war against the Israelites. In the Old Testament, this is a bit of a regular occurrence. In fact, throughout Israel's early history, we find this constant reference to their nation battling with the people of the Philistine territory. And given the fact that we find that reference regularly, the obvious question that arises in our minds is, well, why? Why is there this ongoing feud? And the reason, historically, is the same in many senses as is the case today. The reason that these people keep fighting with one another is over land. In short, Joshua 15 tells us that part of the Philistine territory formed part of the land that God had assigned to the tribe of Judah to be part of the promised land. So as the Israelites understand that, naturally Joshua led the Israelites into battle to lay hold of that land that God had promised them as their inheritance. But despite the efforts of the Israelites, the territory within the Philistine region that belonged to the tribe of Judah that was part of the promised land was never fully entered and never fully conquered during Joshua's lifetime. We do read in Judges chapter 1 and verse 18, some considerable time after Joshua's lifetime, that there was a moment in which the tribe of Judah were successful in laying hold of three of the major cities within the Philistine territory. However, the Philistines weren't too happy with that. They retaliated, regained those areas, and more than just retaliating and regaining those cities, they began a very aggressive campaign against the Israelites to ensure that that would never, ever happen again. And that aggressive campaign against the Israelites is one that we see happening time and time again within the early life of Old Testament Israel. And as we see this picture, the picture that is painted is of a battle surrounding a piece of land around some turf, but actually it's not about a battle around land and around turf. It's about a piece of land that has been promised by God to the people of God. It's not a battle about land, it's a battle surrounding entering into the promises of God. It's a significant battle. And what is interesting in that then is that, and what is encouraging in that I suppose, is that for the Israelites, Stepping into what God promised them wasn't easy. Stepping out in obedience to his voice, stepping into his calling was a bit of a struggle. It wasn't all easy and plain sailing. It wasn't a case of God spoke and they stepped out and obeyed and everything was rosy and everyone skipped through Israel singing zippity doo -dah. The Stepping into the promises of God involved a bit of a struggle for them involved a bit of a fight. And the Israelites found that 
Each time there was this constant opposing force that sought to resist them, to sought to stop them stepping into what God had for them. So being obedient to God went having to put up a bit of a fight. Stepping into what God called them involved a bit of warfare. And do you know what? There is a sense in which this is encouraging to us because we would all acknowledge that there are times that being obedient to God's call can be kind of hard. Stepping out in obedience to his voice can be a bit of a difficulty. Stepping into what he calls us to and and what he's promising and what he's laying out for us can at times feel like there is a battle going on, that there is this constant opposing force that is seeking to resist us. And this is the point where we have to call out and just remind ourselves again, we do not battle against flesh and blood, but we do battle against powers and principalities and spiritual forces at work in spiritual places. We are in a spiritual warfare. There is an enemy of our souls one that seeks to steal, kill, and destroy, one that seeks to resist us stepping in and inhabiting the promises of God. And perhaps what God might say to us this morning is that some of us need to get our fight back. See, the passage opens with the Israelites on one hill and the Philistines on the other hill. And the Israelites look across the valley, and they see their enemy. They see that which prevents them from entering into what is rightfully theirs. And as they look, they see and they know that there is a battle that has to be fought. Standing on the mountaintop, they know that there is a valley that has to be entered, and there is a battle that has to be fought. Do you know there are moments in life when we climb the mountain? And we press into God and we seek Him and we come to that place where it's lovely and it's wonderful and we're sitting on the mountaintop as it were and as we crest onto the top of the mountain we only discover that the other side of the mountain there is a valley that has to be entered and there's a foe that has to be conquered. In life there are moments where we enter into valleys, dips in life, difficulty, hardships. There's forces that we have to fight against in order to climb back up the mountain at the other side and progress into what God is calling us and the territory that he is releasing to us. And that's difficult for us because we quite like the mountaintop stuff, don't we? And we quite enjoy the mountaintop experiences. So here's what we do. We build ourselves a theology and a doctrine that allows us to keep living on the top of the mountain. That allows us to live in that place where we teach ourselves and we train ourselves to believe that everything has to be lovely and everything has to be wonderful and everything has to be prospering and everything has to be blessed. But the truth of the matter is, when we get to the top of the mountain, if we are progressing in God, there will always be a valley that has to be entered and a battle that has to be fought. And right now, we might be standing on the top of the mountain of life and we look around and we can see what God has promised us, the inheritance, as it were, that he has prepared for us. We can see that which he is calling us into, that which he is is preparing and, and releasing within our lives, that which is rightfully ours. But the truth is, before we can reach it and realize it, there is a valley that has to be entered and there is a foe that has to be conquered and it's time to get our fight. Now that's important to hear because the truth is there's times that we can become a bit disheartened when breakthrough and victory doesn't always manifest and is not always tangible. We can become disheartened when we feel that we are always constantly battling against the same issues and the same problems and facing the same struggles. 
And it can be all too easy in those moments just to give up and admit defeat. And here is a picture for us which is really helpful to see that the Israelites had to fight the Philistines again. Another battle, another valley, another time of trial and tribulation facing the same thing. The truth actually is that the Israelites had to face different battles in different contexts and different seasons before they actually won the war and possessed what God had given them. And the same is true for us. There are different battles to be fought. Different battles to be fought at different times in different contexts and in different seasons before we can win the overall war and find the breakthrough and the victory that we're looking for. The key then is to learn to view the individual battles as part of God's strategy towards overall victory. The key and the importance is that we need to view the individual battles as part of his strategy in bringing us to a place of victory and breakthrough and release within our lives and our circumstances. Don't give up at the first battle because the overall war hasn't been fought and won. We have to learn instead that each individual victory in each individual season, each context, each situation is God taking us one step closer to freedom. Don't get consumed with winning the overall war that we lose sight of the profound victory of the individual battles that get us to that finish line. See, it might be that freedom from the pain and the hurt that you feel begins with the battle to forgive yourself, which then leads to waging the battle to forgive the other person which then leads to the battle to release your thought process from the constant memory and reminder of it, which then leads to the battle of coming out from under that cloud of guilt that you feel because of what took place, which then leads to the battle not to allow what took place to become your identity and your definition, which then leads to battling into a place of beginning to engage with God wholeheartedly and with arms wide open, and then at that moment complete freedom and deliverance comes. But each battle is important to lead towards the overall victory. And genuine freedom can never be found until each battle is individually fought and won head on and moved on from. Now don't get me wrong, in the economy of God, God can take us from the first battle all the way through across the victory line and bring us into out and out freedom. He does that at times. He can do it and he does do it. But there's also moments in which God leads us through battle after battle after battle after battle, which means that when we come through into the overall victory, we hold on to that and cling to it with all that we've got because it's cost us loads to get there. We hold on to it and we cling to it with all that we've got because we've seen God move and function, bringing us so powerfully, so faithfully through each of these individual battles and seasons that when we come to our overall breakthrough and come out into the open plain, we embrace it with all that we have. Don't become so consumed with winning the war that we lose sight of the profound victory of each of the individual battles that we have to face in order to get there. Don't condemn yourself when you've come before him and prayed and sought his face and, and, and fasted and changed things in your life, but you haven't seen the overall victory yet, but instead pause and look back and recognize the small individual battles that he has brought you through and see his hand and see his work and celebrate what he's doing. Equally, to give up in an individual battle is to lose the overall war. 
We have to let the victory of previous battles give us confidence in the current conflict. In this passage, we read of the moment where the Israelites take their place on the mountaintop ready to face the Philistines in battle. And you're like, why? Why did they turn up in this situation again? Well, the reason is because just four chapters previous, the Israelites fought the Philistines and they kicked their butts. Just four chapters previous. And the last fight was one the old-fashioned way, with grace and truth. Philistines had removed the blacksmiths from within the nation of Israel to stop them building or making weapons. And so they had no weapons to go into battle with. And very long story, very short, God stepped in and through divine intervention, they kicked and whipped Philistine posterior. And therefore, I reckon that given the fact that they fought and won this victory very ill-equipped, that they arrived at this one thinking to themselves, if that's what we can do when we're not armed, think of what we could do when we are. If we've managed to get through this one when we weren't properly prepared, think of what will happen now that we are. They approached this battle with a confidence that came from the past victories. And you know, the lessons learned from previous battles strengthen us as individuals and equip us for what is to come. When we go through trials and when we go through difficulties in life and we learn and we grow as individuals in the process, when we learn what to do and what not to do, when we learn about characters and natures, when we begin to grow in wisdom and understanding, when we come out the other side of those things stronger, bigger people, better individuals, better equipped as a result. And the knowledge of the victory from the previous battles gives us confidence in the current conflict because we can train ourselves and teach ourselves and encourage ourselves. If God delivered me from that, he can deliver me from this. If he's brought me through that, he will bring me through this. If he held me in that, I've got to believe I'm in his grip in the midst of this. The previous victory gives us confidence in the current conflict. In 1 Samuel, we read of the Israelites taking their place for battle. Let's look at it from verse 4. It says, A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits in a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze, weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and his iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. The Israelites march forward in battle and they are immediately confronted with Goliath. Goliath immobilized the Israelite army. Now two things caused this. The first was the appearance of the giant and the second was the announcement of the giant. Now, what do we know about Goliath? What we know about Goliath is that he is called a champion. That's the way he's introduced to us. A Philistine champion called Goliath. Now, the word champion in the original language means a man of two fields or a man between two armies. He was selected as a champion because of his ability and his excellence in combat, in strength, and in bravery. Goliath was the best fighter the Israelites had, and he was the strongest fighter that they had, and most certainly he was the bravest fighter that they had. 
The champions didn't fight in the ranks of an army like an ordinary soldier. Rather, champions were ones who would stand in between the two armies, and they would summon the opposing army's best warrior to come and fight them. And whoever fought and won that battle won the war. Hence, the concept of a champion being one that stood between two fields or stood between two armies. They would stand and say, send your best guy. I'm our nation's best guy. Whoever wins this battle wins the war. Now, Goliath was qualified as a champion for obvious reasons. His height was six cubits and a span. And the footnote in the, the Bible, it helps us to understand what that means in real money. It reckons he was about nine foot tall. In fact, some theologians reckon that he was between nine foot and 11 foot tall. Now, in the Guinness Book of Records, which obviously I read alongside my Bible, in the Guinness World Book of Records, the tallest recorded man was a man called Robert Wadlow, who was eight foot 11 inches. He weighed 490 pounds and wore a size 30 shoe. Goliath was taller than that, between nine foot and 11 foot, which probably meant his toes were about the same size as my wee wife. But <laughs> he was a big guy. His armor weighed a minimum of 5,000 shekels, which is 140 pounds, which is 10 stone in weight. The very fact that this man was so skillful and agile in combat, whilst wearing such incredible weight, shows that he had phenomenal physical strength. His spear's shaft was like a weaver's rod. 17 pounds is a weaver's rod. That's 7.7 kilograms. The iron point on the shaft weighed 600 shekels. That's 15 pounds or 7 kilograms. His armor is massive. His shield bearer, we're told, went ahead of him. In biblical times, the shield wasn't carried by the warrior. A shield bearer went in in front of the warrior to almost fend off anything incoming to allow the warrior then to attack and be on the offense. The shields in biblical days were designed to cover from the face, mid-face, down to the knees. So if Goliath was nine foot tall, we're talking about a shield approximately six foot tall, which was taller than the average man. Clearly, it wasn't his height or just his height that intimidated them, but his armor would have as well. Having such large, having such strong armor would mean that eliminating the giant would prove to be a very difficult task. His defense mechanisms were massive. Forgetting the weapons of warfare to attack, if his shield covered from his face to his knees, his shield itself, his defense mechanism was bigger than anybody in the army of Israel. His defense mechanisms, that which allowed him to occupy the space, that which allowed him to function, that which allowed him to stand in those moments and exist in that moment of warfare was bigger than anything that was coming against him. His defense mechanisms were huge. Added to that came the announcement of the giant. 
Look at verse 8. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? Are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he's able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistines said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man. Let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Here we see Goliath functioning as the man between two fields or the man between two armies. He comes and says, right, send out your best guy to fight me. Whoever wins, wins the war. So in order for the Israelites, in order for them to gain what was rightfully theirs, the only way was to eliminate the giant. And this seemed like mission impossible. His defense mechanisms alone were bigger than even the biggest men of Israel, but yet this was their only option. In order to progress into the promises of God, in order to step into what God had called them to, in order to be what they were meant to be, in order to receive what they were meant to receive, they would have to take out the giant. And this seemed like an impossible task, but yet the only way that they could was to tackle the giant. And you know, in verse 16, it tells us that for 40 days, the giant came into the valley and took his stand against the Israelites, and he did it day and night. In the morning when they awoke, they were confronted with the giant in the valley. At night before they went to bed, they were confronted with the giant in the valley. Every day, morning and night, morning and night, they were confronted with the giant in the valley. They could not get away from the giant in the valley. They had to confront him. And you know, for many of us, we journey through life experiencing the goodness of God and experiencing his reality, but when it comes to entering into all that God promised, there seems to be this force that stops us from entering into what is rightfully ours. We stand on the mountaintops of life and we look and we can see our inheritance, as it were. We can see what he's calling us into. We can see what he's prepared for us and we look and we can see it within reach and we recognize that before we can fully step into it, there is a valley that has to be entered and there is a foe that has to be conquered. And entering valleys in themselves is not a difficult thing for us. We've got loads of experience in that, don't we? Life is full of valleys. Progress in life is full of moving from one struggle and one difficulty to another. Yes, there's moments in which life is absolutely brilliant and wonderful, but we always know around the corner at some point things are going to get hard and things are going to get difficult again. We're going to need to enter into the valley. Entering in and journeying through valleys isn't a problem for us. The problem for many of us is that when we crest the mountain and we look down into the valley, we pause and we think, hang on a minute, there's a giant in the valley. Something that appears so big, so strong, so powerful. Something that it seems as though its defense mechanisms are so big. That which allows it to be there, that which allows it to operate, that which allows it to have its influence and have its position. We look and we think its defense mechanisms are so big, there's absolutely no way that we can do anything about that. And that moment as we see that giant, it begins to spark fear within us. And here's how it outplays. 
We stand on the mountaintop of life and we look across at all that God's promised us, all that he's called us to, and we recognize that there's a valley to enter and there's a foe to conquer, but we see that there's a giant in the valley. And so we come to the mountaintop and we look and we think, well, that's bigger than anything that we could ever handle, and then we retreat. And day in and day out, we stand on the mountaintop and we gaze and we look across at what could be, what should be, what, what we hope would be. But that's all we can ever do is gaze and dream because there's a giant in the valley. And today, I think God might say to us, my child, there's a giant in the valley and it's time to confront it. There's a giant in the valley and it needs to fall. There's a giant in the valley and it has to come down. There's a giant in the valley and it's time to take it out and enter into what is rightfully yours. The Israelites see this giant before them. And this giant in their valley embodies fear. Fear is a Goliath-shaped giant in the valley of life. Fear is a Goliath-shaped issue particularly into our exiting COVID and living in a post-COVID landscape. But fear is also a Goliath-shaped issue that is plaguing the next generation. And you know what? It's time as parents and grandparents. It's time as the current generation. It's time as the people of God that we rose up, rise up and take out the giant in the valley. It needs to be confronted. Verse 20 tells us of the moment that David is sent by his father to deliver the packed lunches to the brothers in the front line. We pick it up from verse 20 of 1 Samuel 17. It says, Early in the morning, David left the flock in the care of a shepherd, loaded up and set out as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle position, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of supplies, rang to the battle lines and asked his brothers how they were. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance, and David heard it. Whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. As we've already said in verse 60, for 40 days, Goliath took his position on the battlefield and shouted his threat. And we have to assume then that for 40 days, the Israelite men respond with the same reaction. They turn and run looking for their mammies. Now, Goliath incites fear. And Goliath immobilized the armies of Israel. In the same way, fear immobilizes the people of God. And fear has two profound characteristics. The first is intimidation. In verse 8, it says, Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? Are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. Verse 10, then the, Israelites, then the Philistines said, this day I defy the armies of Israel. Give us a man and let us fight each other. Goliath steps onto the battlefield and asks a question. Why? Why are you turning up like this? Why are you lining up for battle? Why are you attempting to possess this land? 
Why do you think that you will gain victory in this moment? Why are you wasting your time doing this? Why are you lining up for battle? And then he says this, I defy the ranks of Israel. See, what he's doing here is he's intimidating. The word defy means to resist openly, to present insuperable obstacles. He says, why are you even bothering to turn up? I am an impossible barrier. I am an immovable object to the ranks of Israel. What he's saying here is, me big, you small. He's intimidating. And that's what intimidation and fear does. It belittles you. It makes you feel and think that you're worthless and insignificant and powerless. And in doing so, it immobilizes you. Why are you even turning up? I'm so big and powerful. You're so small and pathetic. You're small. You're insignificant. You're powerless. You're worthless. Why are you even doing this? There's classic intimidation happening here. And we don't have time to go into it, but as well as that, what we see is, a, see is an impact upon the identity of the armies of Israel. He says, why are you the servants of Saul lining up? David corrects it later on. And he says, actually, what you're dealing with here are not the servants of Saul. It's the armies of the living God. Fear intimidates, it belittles us, it impacts our identity. But not only does it intimidate, but it also manipulates. Verse 11 it says, on hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Verse 24, when the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. We see manipulation here. To manipulate is to control. And here we see the giant controlling the army's behavior and the army's mindset. Because what we see here is completely irrational. They are an entire army. He is one man, but the sight of the one man causes them to run. You notice it doesn't say, when he came running towards them, they all ran away in fear. When he started firing arrows at them, they all ran away in fear. When he started fighting them and giving them the Malki, they all ran away in fear. No, it just says, whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. All he does is stand in front of them and as soon as he stands up, they run away. A whole army runs from one man. That's not logical. That's not rational behavior. That's irrational behavior. And the scripture says this happened, verse 16, for 40 days. So here's how we see Manipulation. For 40 days, every morning they, lie, they line up. Every evening they line up. The giant comes out and they run away. They come back and repeat it again before tea. Next day, they get up for breakfast, line up. They see the man, they run away. They come back at night, repeat it again before tea. And actually what happened is that that took place for a period of 40 days. For 40 days, this giant completely manipulated their behavior and their function. They weren't able to function because of the presence of this giant. Fear manipulates our everyday regular behavior. It influences the way that we function day in and day out. This giant is controlling and manipulating their behavior, but not just their behavior, also their mindset. Verse 11 says that when they heard the words of the giant, they became dismayed. 
The word dismayed means to break down, to despair, to become depressed and anxious. So it's not just their behavior that's impacted, but their whole emotional state is too. Fear doesn't just manipulate our behavior, it also impacts our emotional well-being. And it impacts our function and our focus in life. The Israelites lost sight of their purpose. They lost sight of the goal that they were aiming for. They lost sight of the vision of victory on the other side of the valley because all they could see was a vision of the giant in their valley. So often fear can just immobilize us, can cause us to lose sight of what God has called us to, can stop us from functioning, can impact us emotionally, mentally, as well as physically in the way that we live day in and day out. And the only way that we can step fully into what God has for us is to confront the giant. We see this in David's interaction with the situation in verse 26. It says, David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? As David witnesses the intimidation and manipulation of Goliath, his first reaction is to ask the question, what will be done for the man that kills this dude? His first instinct is, this needs dealt with. This needs sorted. This needs confronted. See, unlike the other men, David is neither intimidated nor manipulated by the giant. And that's because he understands two very important things. He understands the identity of the giant and he understands the identity of the armies of Israel. He identifies and calls out that he's an uncircumcised Philistine. Now, when you read that, you think, really? Is that detail necessary? Could you not just have said, who is this Philistine? Or who is this dirty big brute of a man? Who is this giant geezer that keeps turning up and shouting at us? Do you really need to reference whether his foreskin is intact or not? Is that really necessary detail? But in actual fact, it really is. See, in Genesis 17, God establishes a covenant with Abraham. And the covenant is all about inheriting the land. And he says that the sign of the covenant is going to be circumcision. Genesis 17 in verse 8, it says, The whole land of Canaan where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give you as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. And then verse 11, it says, You're to undergo circumcision, and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and you. The covenant that God gave to Abraham and his descendants was the whole land of Canaan. It was to be their everlasting possession. They were to own it and possess it forever. What we're reading is the Israelites stepping into that covenant. And the symbol of the agreement was circumcision. Verse 14 says this, Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people and he will have broken my covenant. In its most simplistic sense, because we don't have time to unpack it, God basically says, Whoever is circumcised is in my promise. And whoever isn't is not. Whoever is circumcised is part of the plan. Whoever is uncircumcised is not. Whoever is circumcised is for me, but whoever is not circumcised is not for me. By default, is against me. Now David calls out specifically, and he identifies that Goliath is an uncircumcised Philistine. So quite importantly, what he's calling out 
is one, this giant is not part of God's plan. Two, he's not for God, and therefore God's not for him. What he's saying is this giant and all that he represents, this intimidation, this manipulation, it's not part of God's plan. It's not from him. It's not of him. Therefore, it's not God. And as Christians, we have to understand something quite important, and that is that fear is not part of God's plan for our lives. And thank God that it's not. But secondly, fear is not of God. Second Timothy says this, God has not given us a spirit of fear. He's given us a spirit of power and of love and of a good mind. Two things come out of this. The first is fear is a spirit. Now, please hear what I'm about to say. Fear is a natural human emotion and reaction to danger and things that we experience. It is not wrong to have fear. It's normal. Fear is a normal human emotion that is there to protect us. It is a natural experience that we will have in response to things that we experience in life. However, what we're talking about here when we talk about fear as being a spirit is not the natural human reaction that we have in response to things, but rather what we're talking about is when something moves into our life with defense mechanisms that seem so big that it's got a right to be there and it is intimidating and manipulating and controlling our lives and is preventing us from entering into what God has in store for us, that is not part of God's agenda for us. That is a spiritual fear. God did not give that spirit. That means it didn't originate in him. It means it's not part of his plan for us. It means it's not of him. It's a tactic of the enemy to immobilize us from God's best for us. And therefore, that type of fear has to be confronted and it has to be dealt with. But how? Well, the key is actually back in the whole circumcision stuff again. Circumcision was a sign of the promise that God had given and one of the promises that God gave Abram was this. Do not be afraid. I am your shield. He says, don't be afraid. Don't want you to live with fear in your life. And here is the reason why. I am your shield. Now remember, a shield was carried into battle in front of the soldier. It covered the soldier. It brought protection by eliminating anything that might come against the warrior to take that warrior or soldier out. So God says to Abraham, you have no need to fear because I am your shield. I go before you. I walk ahead of you. I go before you. I am your covering. I eliminate anything that seeks to come against you. This was his promise. This was the covenant. And when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, when we become Christians, the, the, the Bible says we become children of God. We belong to him. He is for us, the scripture says. We begin to get sight of his plan. In fact, we become his plan. His plan for our lives, his plan for the world outworked through his lives. We are in on the plan of God for planet earth. And his promise to us is this then. As we've experienced the circumcision of the heart, as it were, you're now more than a conqueror in every situation that you face. You are now in a position where no weapon formed against you will ever be able to prosper. And the reason is this, I am your shield. I am your covering. I am your protection. I go before you in every situation. I eliminate anything that would seek to come against you. Therefore, you do not need to fear. 
Because what's bigger than our God? Nothing. Nothing is bigger than your defense mechanisms. That which gives you the right to be who you are. That which gives you the right to occupy the space that you're called to. That which gives you the right and the ability to hold your ground and be who you are. Your defense mechanisms are huge. Goliath went in with a shield carried in front of him, probably the size of the person carrying in in front of him. Our defense mechanism is the God that created the entire universe. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth gives way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and its mountains quake with their surging, because God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in times of trouble. He is our shield. We will fear not, the scripture says, for he has redeemed us. He has summoned us by name. We are his. We belong to him. We are his possession. He is for us. We are in on the plan. So when we pass through the waters, they won't sweep over us. When we walk through the fire, we won't be burned and they won't set us ablaze. They can't because the God Almighty is our shield and our covering and our protection. Our defense mechanisms are bigger than anything that could ever possibly come against us. So we can exist in every environment and every circumstance with confidence. He goes before us. He is behind us. He hems us in. The shield around us is the creator of the entire flipping universe. Therefore, nothing in this world, nothing outside of this world can ever eliminate us or take us out because we function behind the greatest defense mechanism that has ever existed. And that's why David didn't need armor. He didn't need swords. He didn't need spears. His weapons were tiny, five small stones. His weapons were tiny because his defense mechanism was huge. Goliath marched onto the battlefield behind his shield. David marched out behind his, and the giant fell. And the reason is because David demonstrated trust. Verse 34 says this. David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he's defiled the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Verse 45, David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. David walks onto the battlefield in a place of trust. Proverbs 29, 25 says this, fear of man proves to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. Fear ensnares, it entraps us, but trust releases us to safely be whoever we are called and meant to be. David's trust is based on his perception of three things. He perceives that Goliath was an uncircumcised Philistine. He is not in on the covenant. God is not on his side. Secondly, he perceived that he has defied the armies of the living God. He says he's coming against the servants of Saul. Actually, David calls out, you're not. You're coming against the armies of the living God, which means that we belong to him, which means if you come against us, you're coming against him, which brings us to the third point. He identified and perceived, and he called out, the battle belongs to the Lord. This is God's battle. 
God's going to do the fighting in this moment. And the cool thing about that is that God doesn't know how to lose. He never loses. Now, upon these facts, David based his trust. This guy is not in the covenant. God is not for him. He's coming against the Lord's possession. God is one who is in this fight. This is his battle. It wasn't the stone that took the giant out. It was David's trust in God. And we see the moment of confrontation when that happens. We begin to read it really quickly from verse 41. It says, Meanwhile, the Philistine with his shield bearer in front of him kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and looking like Fraser Donaldson. (laughs) And he despised him, obviously. He said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I will give your flesh to the birds and to the wild animals. In this moment of confrontation, (coughs) Goliath flexes his muscles and we see classic signs of fear, of intimidation and manipulation. He says, you are only a boy. You're small. I'm big. Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? What he's saying here is not, you're attacking me with sticks. What he's saying is, sending a boy to the battlefield is like throwing a stick for a dog. I'm not going to be intimidated. I'm not going to be injured. In fact, I'm going to have fun playing with this boy. I'm going to have fun eliminating this boy. This is like sending a play toy onto the battlefield. He's manipulating. He's intimidating. In fact, he manipulates by saying to him, come here. Come to me and I'll feed your body to the birds and to the wild animals. He's seeking to control the way that he functions. This is classic fear. And David responds to fear. Verse 45 to 47, we don't have time to go into it. But he responds to fear and he right-sizes fear. He says, you come at me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord. He says, you come against me with weapons that you think are big and powerful, but I come against you with something bigger and stronger and greater and more powerful. I come against you in the name of the Lord. He right-sizes fear by declaring the greatness of his God in that moment. He says, what you've lined up here with is nothing compared to what this small boy has entered into the battlefield with. My God is greater. My God is bigger. And he not only declares greatness in the face of fear, but he also declares his identity. He says, you call us the servants of Saul, but you need to understand You're coming against the armies of the living God. Our strength and power and ability in this battle is not determined by the significance or the wealth of a king or the prowess of his military armor. Our strength and ability is dependent upon the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. You need to know who I am and you need to know whose I am. He declares his identity. And in that moment, he right-sizes fear. 
Fear is trying, the giant is trying to control and manipulate him by making out that he's big and he's small and, and he can control and he can manipulate him. And David, by declaring the greatness of God, David, by declaring his identity of who he is and of who he represents, David actually brings that giant down, teeny tiny little, takes it out with a small stone. He brings him down small. You see, when we find ourselves in the moments of conflict and hardship, when fear is flexing its muscles, we need to begin by right-sizing fear and beginning by declaring the greatness of God in the moments of adversity. And those declarations aren't just a prophetic act that actually is a weapon of warfare that brings change and shapes culture in those moments. Actually, even within the culture of the soul, a change is made because as we begin to declare the greatness of God, this might be what's facing me, but actually my God is greater and my God is bigger and my God is stronger. And what he's brought me through before, he's going to bring me through this again. If he's done this for me then, he can do it for me again. As we begin to declare the greatness of God, confidence and strength begins to enter into the soul and we begin to stand in that moment saying, you may be coming against me, but you need to know whose I am and who I represent and who I belong to. And he's the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. My defense mechanisms are bigger than anything that could ever come against. And David takes that stone and the stone strikes the giant and the giant falls to the ground. Now the giant's not dead at that point. Scripture calls that out very specifically. There's a key phrase in verse 49. It says, reaching into his bag, taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. That's significant. The giant fell on his face. His back was exposed. Historically, the back was the only part that was not covered by armor because the mindset was you advanced into battle and you never retreated. David, by putting his trust in God, by declaring the greatness of God and the identity of whom he belonged, in that moment, God actually presented that what appeared really big was actually very small and very vulnerable in comparison to the greatness of God. And verse 51 says that he killed him. And we can only assume, it's not explicitly called out, but we can only assume that this giant brute of a guy covered in armor, the only way that could have happened was the sword right through his back. But putting the trust in God, God created the opera, he exposed the weakness of the enemy and gave David a way to take that which came against him out. Verse 51 says this, and with this, we'll bring this to a close. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from the sheath. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. David's trust caused three things to happen. Number one, specifically it says David stood over him. To stand over him is to be in a position of authority. His trust in God in that moment brought David to a place of authority and victory. In the midst of conflict and adversity, when fear is flexing its muscles, when we begin to prophesy greatness, when we begin to declare the greatness of God within that moment, the God in whom, to whom we belong and in whom we have our trust, those actions bring us into a place of authority in those moments. God brings us to a place where we stand over that which comes against us. Secondly, it says he took hold of the Philistine's sword. He disarmed the enemy and left them powerless against them. He had no ability to wound or impact him anymore. He was disarmed. 
Thirdly, he chopped off the bloke's head and killed him. He eliminated the giant completely from that valley and from ever operating in that way ever again. David, by putting his faith and trust in God, was brought to this phenomenal place where the giant fell and the victory was sure. When we find ourselves in those moments, we have to build into our mindsets the ability to perceive that which is coming against me. God is not on that side. I am the Lord's possession. Therefore, what comes against me comes against him, which means then this battle isn't mine and it's his, and he never loses. Our trust in him in those moments will give us authority and victory over the giants that exist in our valleys. We'll disarm the enemy and leave them powerless against us. Think of this. The enemy raises everything up to try and belittle and try and confront and try and eliminate and to try and control and manipulate and he throws his best at us and we just start celebrating Jesus and talking about how wonderful he is and he keeps firing at us and he keeps firing at us and he keeps throwing stuff at us and we're just delirious celebrating the joy of God and how awesome he is and how amazing he is. He has no influence in that moment. We render him powerless and in the place of trust. God begins to move in our lives and through our lives to bring us to a place where he eliminates that giant from our lives, never to function again. Glasgow, we stand on the mountaintop and you know, we've had a good innings since we've emerged back from COVID and God's brought us to an amazing place. But as we stand on the top of the mountain, as it were, there is a valley that now has to be entered and there's a foe that has to be conquered. And there is a giant in that valley, but that giant is not of God's will. It's not for him. It is against him. And that giant is coming against us, is coming against the Lord's possession. Therefore, this battle is God's. And we need to see that giant taken out. It's time for the giants to fall. And the only way we can do that is to declare his greatness, put our trust in him, and watch him get to work. So I wonder, Glasgow Elam, would you stand with me and could we declare the greatness of God together? Could we declare that together?